everybody. Bees with Ben. Oh, jeez. Oh, I got a big episode today. Like, this is absolute. This is groundbreaking stuff. I have an amazing guest, uh, James Dory. We're talking about bees, native bees, and the Ferrohylius lactiferus, which we're going to hear all about. Thank you so much, James, for uh, for your time today. No worries, Ben. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So, so um, I'm, we're going to talk about this um, the cloaked bee that's been rediscovered after a hundred years. So we're going to talk about it in a sec. But I know about you. So, where did you uh, where did you come from? Where where because uh, you've done this book and the photography and how did this journey sort of start in uh, in native bees, James? Yeah, uh, it's a bit of an unusual starting, perhaps. So, where did I come from? First of all, I'm from Northern New South Wales. Um. And that's kind of where I got interested in nature because my dad had planted a rainforest around our house. So he was super into super into it. And, of course, I had no choice but to be as well. Um, not that it was unwilling. Uh, then how did I get into native bees? I was up at, in Brisbane studying a Bachelor of Science and I wasn't sure at all what I wanted to do. Um, but I remember a... Um, I think it was my first year. I went to like one of those council people that help you choose your topic. Oh yeah. And they asked yep. me, "Do you, do you want to do um, insect science as a course?" I'm like, "Nah, look, I, I don't know what I want to do. I know I don't want to." <laughs> um, but obviously, the next year I was doing it, and the reason was uh, I'd gone and bought a second-hand macro lens in that time. Oh yeah, yep. And I just started taking photos of the insects in my yard, and I. You know, he took photos of a whole bunch of different species of awesome parasitic wasps. Uh, and then I took photos of about 33 different species of native bee on a single tree at the front of my house. Oh, like, wow. Right in suburban Brisbane. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're all different shapes, colors, sizes, and I was kind of blown away from that. That is awesome. Now, now the, the so the photography, I've got to ask the question, are you a mm. Canon man or a Nikon man? I'm a Canon man, but I'm not. <laughs> yes. I'm not. Um, I'm not like uh, super strong on either to say that one is better than the other. Um, a lot of people like to argue it out. And yes. Yeah. Oh. I, don't, I don't see a huge difference. It's a, it's a little bit Sometimes like sometimes there are little differences. Yes. Yeah. It's a little bit like holding forward, really, isn't it? It's uh, you know, the whole Nikon Canon thing. I've got your book in front of me. Now, I'm going to put this in the show notes so everyone can find this book because this, you know, if you're listening to this and you don't own this book, you need to buy it. Um, Bees of Australia, a photographic exploration. Um, it was only, two, I think, 2018. Um, mm. Yes, yep. Uh, I remember getting this. I think it was the month that got released. Now, the, the talking about photography, the photos in here are incredible like we're looking you can almost count the hairs on on certain species of bees antennae like this is incredible your, your photography skills are absolutely truly amazing so and, and getting these these photos this must take time and patience and uh i know obviously some of them have been mounted but it's, it's incredible what you've done here james absolutely absolutely incredible yeah thanks then uh I definitely felt it when you said it takes time. They definitely take a lot of time. Each one of those photos takes probably between one and three hours to finish. Oh, wow. Um, oh. And we've got a few thousand photos. It's a lot, <laughs> a yes. lot of time that's gone into it. So, so, um, wow. That's incredible. So how long did it take to get the book together, James? Uh, about three years. Okay. Yep. 
Um, yeah, so it, yeah, it started out with a trip around Australia. Um, and I kind of wanted to just do that. And the book was the excuse. So I drove around Australia in my van taking photos as I went. I had a little drawer uh, under the bed where I would pull out and the camera was in there and I'd take photos from there. Um, of course, you're always growing in photography. So by the time the book was published, those photos were already quite dated in terms of te- technique and stuff. But still, it's nice to look over it. It just feels like a lot longer ago than just 2018. Yeah, wow. That's the um, As I said, these photos are just absolutely incredible. Like just the... The, the time and, and doing so what was is there one particular species that was harder to to photograph compared to another um so the smaller ones are generally more difficult to image um and the reason for that is kind of as you get smaller and smaller and you zoom in on something the number of photos you need to take the stack together because that's that's what these photos are the cold focus stack so you take a series of photos through a bee or whatever you're taking photos of and then in post-processing you stack all of those bits together so it only takes the little bits that are in focus um, because as you get closer the depth of field so okay. how much of the bee is in focus gets tinier and tinier so I think at uh, I'm using my 10 times microscope the depth of field is 150th of a millimeter um, yeah so those tiny bees takes a lot of images put together and also my microscope objective isn't quite as good as my other lenses okay interesting and it's and as i said i really encourage people to to buy this and I, once again i'll put it in the show notes and um i'll put links to um to your social media pages and so forth um but mm. th- these photos like i'm looking at the thyrus nitidulus um which is absolutely incredible the blues on this it's like looking at a different world. You know, we can see bees from like a macro sort of uh, view, you know, in the garden and, and so forth. But looking at them in a micro view is absolutely, truly incredible. Yeah, they really are like micro, like uh, landscapes in miniature. It's, it's part of what really fascinates me, actually. Um, the fact that you can take these photos, zoom in and just see things that you would never know, know were there otherwise. Um, bits of pollen, sculpturing, like hairs, colours. Yeah, it's insane. Oh, it's inc- absolutely incredible. So now, question, obviously you, you're out in the field a lot, you know, sort of obviously doing studies and so forth and photography. Do, do you keep bees at home at all? No, I don't. Um, I might have kept some native bees, like little stingless bees. Yes. Um, but now that I'm in SA, they're not native to the region. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, so I wouldn't bring them down, and I don't know if they'd even survive anyway. They'd probably take a fair bit of hair. Okay. But still, they're not, they're not native to the region, so uh, there's no reason to bring them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's interesting. It's, um, and what about, are you, what are your thoughts on, because this is a very interesting sort of topic and discussion about European honeybees, you know, which is what you know, most of us sort of keep. Um, do you think, uh, from your experience of being out in the field, do you see them out-competing these native species or are they coexisting generally okay? It's really, it's hard to imagine how they can't compete. Like, they must. So a lot of the time, for some trees and plants and stuff, particularly when I'm sampling around Victoria, it seems like some of those cooler places, I can catch 
more honeybees on a particular tree than anything else. Um, and of course, honeybees are actually quite large by Australian native bee sam- uh, uh, standards. So, yeah, I think that they will be competing and out-competing native bees. Um, you know, they're big, they're social, they're really, really good at finding and using resources because they can work together. Um, and then when they do find them, they don't just use the resources that they individually need. They'll take the resources back and store it in their hives. Um, there's a huge feral population throughout Australia, maybe getting less towards the north because they're not as good in the tropics. Okay. Um, so I, I encounter them in, in large numbers. Um, and for me, they're a bit of a pain as well because they're big and they're scary and you don't want to get stung by them in the net. That's making it stings. Have you been, is there obviously some of these, uh, or the predominant species is they're a solitary native bee in Australia. Um, have you been stung by any of uh, any of the native bees? I've been stung by a few. So we have at least 1,650 named species in Australia. And the estimates run somewhere between two and 3,000 species. And as you said, the vast majority of those are solitary. Um, and these are across five families of bees. Okay. So um, obviously Apis, the like European honeybee and the Asian honeybee are pretty good at singing. Um, but in the same family of Apidae, the, the stingless bees are there and they're um, eusocial as well, but obviously they don't sing. Then we have one family, which is the only family restricted to a single continent, um, which is really cool, called, called the Stenotritids. Okay. And they're actually stingless as well, and they're quite large, interesting bees. But have I been stung? I've been stung by some of the smaller bees. So I've been stung by Homolictus before, which is a little ground-nesting bee, and that was mild. I've been stung by a masked bee, so a Hylian, that was super mild as well. And I'm pretty sure I was stung by Eurycolosteine, which is a subfamily which is only found in Australia, and they are tiny. But okay. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm not sure that I was stung because I barely felt it. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> so these... No- thought, yeah. Okay, so these native bee stings, they're, they're pretty mild. It's sort of more like a, a pinch as opposed to a, a, a big whack. Yeah, so that being said, some of my lab mates have been stung by some of the larger mass bees and they've uh, <laughs> said that it's, it's pretty intense. Yes. You'll definitely know about it. Um, and I've also heard that some of the lazy blossoms, some of those other ground-nesting bees, pack a punch. Okay. Um, yeah, and in fact, the only records of people maybe possibly dying or having uh, like anaphylactic reactions from native bees were way back when many decades ago and it was a uh, lazy glossum that they saw. But it was super anecdotal. So as far as we know, no one's actually died from the native bee sting. In okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, because obviously with the European honeybees, you know, a lot of people, I'm seeing a bit more regularly, more people becoming sort of more allergic to them. So... Um, but they they do hurt. There's, that's got a, that venom is got a big uh, a big whack to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, you got any funny stories? Uh, been out in the field talking about funny oh. things. Yeah, what's a funny story? That's a good question. All right, so some of my favourite ones because I'm completely desensitised to this now. I think uh, thinking back to when I was making the book um, and driving around Australia in my old Toyota van. Um, I spent the day before laying, like, on my belly taking photos of um, blue banner bees. 
in like coming to these flowers. Okay. Um, and I spent way too long there, so I got a little bit sunburnt. Even the back of my legs were sunburnt because laying in the dirt. Um, so the following day, this was somewhere in Outback WA, I'm pretty sure. And it was <laughs> yeah. blistering hot. Yes. Yeah. I was wearing long pants, long sleeve shirt, sunglasses, bandana up under my sunglasses, and a massive broad rim hat on the side of the road with like a butterfly net. Um, so I just sort of looked insane. And I just recall like watching all the people drive past and the number of double takes I got. Like, that yeah, is I was gold. People. I was, yeah, I was happy I didn't cause an accident. <laughs> <laughs> that is gold because you're all looking at this crazy person in the middle of nowhere with a butterfly net. That is awesome. That's funny. Yeah, yeah all covered up. I want to look like a bandit or something. <laughs> with a butterfly net. <laughs> that is, uh, that is awesome. So you do a lot of traveling. So you're, so, um, so a lot of field work. So you're out in the field all the time. Yeah, less so with COVID. Yep. And less so towards the end of my PhD. The problem is I've got a whole bunch of bees that I need to identify. And I've been working with someone called Remco Lays at the South Australian Museum. And he's been working through IDing a whole bunch of them, um, which is great. But I have hours and hours and hours of time at the microscope that I need to put in to actually finish identifying these bees. And I feel like I need to do that before I, before I go out and do more field work, really. That being said, I, I do always want to go out. Sometimes I go out with um, some of my other friends, like Ben Parslow, who's also at the South Australian Museum. I'll go out with him sometimes, particularly because he's the one encouraging me to do it. He's like, let's go find some what? He awesome. works on the parasites of native bees. I'm like, okay fine but it's fun you, you go out um it's a nice sunny day you know you, you look for some bugs which is fun you sit down have a nice lunch and stuff and have a good yarn it's great it's awesome i want your job james mm. except I, i'm uh, ac- <laughs> <laughs> academically uh i'm not the best though so i uh, was not the best but anyway um so obviously the traveling now the um pharaoh hylius lactiferous now tell us about that so you how did that all start? Because that was that was you know, groundbreaking um, this rediscovery. So, so were you were you looking for this species? How did this all happen? I was actually. So one of the things. So I was I was doing field work as part of my PhD, which was essentially looking at um, homolecticides. It's changed a little bit since then, but. I was out collecting native bees in general because I was doing these massive trips up and down the East Coast. And if you're doing that, you may as well just not keep, like, not only keep one group of bees because that work is so rarely done. Those data will be really valuable. Um, But I'm also, like, half-heartedly trying to image all of the bee genera in Australia. Okay, yep, yep. Um, And so there are, Seven genera in the masked bee subfamily, so the Hylaeni, um, and one of those is Pharaohylaeus. So that genus in Australia is only represented by a single species, which is Lactiferous. Yes. Um, and as you said, it hadn't been found for nearly 100 years. The last collection was in 1923, and up until then, there'd only been six specimens ever collected. There's one other species in Papua New Guinea which has had two specimens ever collected yep. so if I wanted to image all of the Australian native bee genera I would need to find Sarah Um and on top of that I was 
worried that it might have been extinct. A couple of my friends had suggested that it might be. Um, it's, it's always really hard to prove extinction in insects. You need to go out and put a lot of effort in. But if you don't know anything about the biology, yes. then it's really hard to look for those species because you don't know where to start, really. And the collection records are super vague from uh, the 1900s. So one of them just said tableland. And Terry Housen, who did the most recent revision, I think put Coranda in yep. question mark. Yep. Oh, no, Atherton in question mark. <laughs> um, because that's like, I don't know, where, what tableland? There's lots of tableland. Uh, another one just said Mackay. I, I'm not certain that it was actually found in Mackay. It might have been back then. Um, but I found it in Yungala, which was, you know, quite a few kilometers away. But, yeah, kind of long story short, I was looking for it. Um, on my whole trip. I didn't know when I would find it. Um, and I was just lucky enough that I was walking along the edge of this tiny little remnant rainforest in Atherton Town called Haller and the Till Conservation Park. And a bee just quickly landed on a, like a leaf, not even a flower in front of me, that is stopping by on its way to forage or do whatever it needed to do. And I caught it and it just happened to be no a highlight. Mm. That is awesome. Yeah, and it took me another two days after that to find any more. Wow! That so so to find the next the next one. So you, you've caught that one, and you've gone actively looking for more. Now, when you say two days, I I know I've got a couple of friends who do a lot of field work and so forth. We're not talking about two or three hours. You're in there just like doing the walking, get that step counter up, and just really push <laughs> yourself, to, aren't you? Look, looking for the next one. Because you're pumped. At this yeah, stage. exactly. So yeah. The, the good thing was it was a tiny remnant rainforest. So there wasn't much area to patrol, which made it all the more surprising that it was so hard to find. I was basically going to every single flowering plant that I could. And I'd spend, you know, hours in front of it with the net, uh, watching, catching whatever came by, wouldn't get anything. I'd go to the next one, move on, move on, move on. And eventually I found it on a firewheel tree. And there was some male quickly patrolling up the top, um, just flying around in circuits. And they were quite difficult to catch because the firewheel tree was, I was using a five-metre net for that. Um, and once you start moving the net at the bottom, it takes a little while to start moving at the top. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, so, and so with, okay, so so just go back a little step, right? It's, so you've, you've caught the first one. All right, so uh, like, th- th- how are you feeling? Are you just like, are you doing like, you know, high fives to the air? Are you doing a dance? Are you just like, what, what's that? Talk us with that emotion of finding that first one because this, this is big stuff. This is, we're talking a, you know, near on 100 years since the last one. What, what were you thinking? What was yeah. it? It's like when it, like, Tatslotto almost. Yeah, so it was, I would say it was embarrassingly exciting. So I, um, I, when I caught it in my net, I was pretty sure what it was, but I wasn't certain. So I kind of like had to run back to my car, put it in a vial, pop it in the fridge, and then like kind of like impatiently wait a few minutes for it to cool down. And I took it out, put it under the microscope, and I could check the characters that said what it was. Yes. Um, and when I knew what it was, yeah, I let out an involuntary guffaw, and I uh, kind of just walked it off a little bit outside the van because I was I was in a in a car park um, with people around. I didn't want to appear like a crazy person. <laughs> you know, is... More than I already did. 
That is awesome. And you've got every right to just go, oh, geez, if that was me, I'd just be, people would think, yeah, I am crazy for the first person to do what you've done because that is so awesome. So, we're, we're, okay, so talk, talk us through the emotions because we've got the first one, you put it in the fridge, you've identified it, you've called it down to, to check it out, you've gone, wow, this is it. So then who, who was the first person you called? Well, I think I either called or texted my partner who was one of the, she's, she actually specializes on researching this group of bees. Yes. So she's Olivia Davies. And she um, was one of the people that mentioned, oh, maybe it's extinct. It hasn't been found in so long. And I also texted Tobias Smith, um, who had also, you know, said something similar. You know, may, maybe it's extinct. It has been found for so long. So those two were the first. Yes. Um, and then I think the day after, I sent an email to Terry Houston at the WA Museum, who's the guy who did the last revision. Yep. And I think I just titled it Something Fun and just put a photo of um, the bee there. And it was kind of like my blind, double blind test. So I'm yes. like, here's a bee. And he, <laughs> somewhat reservedly, but maybe excitedly for him, I guess, said, uh, ah, it appears you've got a male Farahalaeus like Cypress. I'd love to know the specifics. So that's about as excited as I think I'll get out of out of Terry in an email. <laughs> that's that's that is awesome. That is fantastic. So okay, so we're let's fast forward a little bit. So uh, I think it was was it next day or you started looking looking for more and you, and then you've and you've caught a couple more. Oh, I started looking effective immediately. So I okay. caught that at eight in the morning, and I spent that whole day, the next whole day, and I think I caught it halfway through the following day. Okay. Wow, that's and and so now you mentioned before. So the first um, specimen you caught, so was that a, a male? Was it foraging? No, the first one is a female. The first one was a female, and then the, and, you've, yeah. and you've caught a, and you've caught a male. I caught yeah, I caught five more. Yep, I think, and they're all males. Interesting. Um, yeah. So I'm I assumed that they were patrolling um, that firewheel tree waiting for females to come because a lot of bees will do that wait oh, okay. at the, like the food resource yes um, to find a mate um, but uh, you know a week before the paper was finally released um, there's okay there's a few really cool um, basically retired photographers in Australia that just love taking photos of insects and particularly native bees yep. um, and a lot of those uh, use Flickr, which is like where, where I kind of got started um, taking photos and sharing photos and they kind of helped develop my interest in native bees. And one of those is Diane Clark and she caught, she took a photo of a male in, uh, of all places, Mulaney. So way further south than I found it. Okay. So super exciting. So there's another population being found, but just a week before the paper came out. But she also took a photo of some viral trees there, and they've got these massive globlets of nectar. So now I'm wondering, well, did I only catch males because the males were just going to get nectar from these trees? So then again, the patrolling behavior might suggest that they're looking for females. Sorry, I'm, I'm still mulling over my head and thinking out loud here. Yeah, no, it's awesome. No, I love it. Absolutely yeah. love it, James. You know, thinking, so, um, so okay, so we've, so we've caught five more. Um, 
and then so what happens? You come you come back to New South Wales. You you're like obviously the phone's going off the hook. You know what I mean? Obviously newspapers and daily and this and that. Everything's media's going crazy. So it should. This is bloody awesome, awesome stuff. So what happens next? So this was 2019, actually. Yes. Um, and I, I spent the next few weeks looking at all the fireball trees in the area that I could. Um, and I didn't find any more. Okay. So that, I was really concerned then that I only managed to find it in this tiny little remnant. So I came back, organized another field trip for the next, the same year, but the next summer. Um, and I started out in Aston. I found some more on this time, the Illawarra flame tree. Yes, okay. And then I started sampling more and more Illawarra flame trees, and that's when I found two more populations, in one in Karanda and one in uh, Yungala. Okay. So once I'd done that, I was a little bit less worried about the species. You know, it's, it's in at least two other places. Yes, okay. And presumably more. Um, and with, with Diane's uh, discovery, now we have four. Yes, so, okay. Yeah. Awesome, and and so yeah. as, as far as um, their breeding cycle, James, so what, how do we know? Do we know how they breed? Are they like a substrate sort of type breeder, or are they breed in sticks? Or no idea. We don't know. So you can have you can have certain clues from their morphology and and their relatives. So most of the mast bees nest in wood of some kind or another. So some of them will nest in preformed holes made by beetle larvae, for example. Um, others might actually chew out uh, a hole in something pithy. So, for example, I found a related um, genus, Meriglossa, up there that appeared to have chewed out a hole through the pithy stem of San Lantana. Um, and there are very few in that group that nest in the ground. Okay. But there's a bit of a clue for ground nesting bees that they have this triangular shape on the tip of their abdomen okay. um, called the pagidial plate. Yep. And this one doesn't have that. So it's probably not a ground nesting bee, um, and that means that it's probably nesting in hollows of, uh, you know, chewed out by beetles or something like that. But we're not sure. That's one of the things I'd really like to know. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I met someone actually while I was up there in 2019, waiting under the firewheel tree, looking like a crazy person. Yes. Um, and she actually lives right next door to Halloran's Hill. Okay. Um, and she emailed me a couple of days ago. She's seen all the media stuff. And I've kind of asked her, as well as Diane, to put out some bee hotels, um, as well as also someone in Yungala who I actually caught the first ones in Yungala in her front yard. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, and I've asked all of them if they can put out some bee hotels and watch because that's one way we might be able to find out. Will they go and nest in these kinds of cavities? Interesting. Um, okay. Aside from that, it's really hard to find bee nests, especially if they're not social, mm. like the European honeybee. You know, you can see bees coming yeah. and going all the time. That's right. Yeah. You have to be lucky enough to see one shoot in or shoot out. Maybe see one waiting at the, the nest entrance. But these bees are smaller than honeybees as well, so you really have to have a keen eye and probably be quite lucky. Yes. And if you know, if they're nesting up in the canopy, <laughs> I'm not going to know about that. Yeah, it's a good point. That's uh, yeah, and it's kind of as you're saying, being right place at the right time to find out where they're they're actually nesting. That's yeah, that's so exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Now, when when we look and, at yeah, sorry, you go, James. No, no, no. Uh, 
No, no, I was just going to say, so when we look at the name, because uh, obviously a lot of people, you know, we're talking sort of scientific names and things, and I think that's kind of very important because, you know, sometimes common names get lost. It can be very like paper wasp, you know, what's a paper wasp? It could be many, it could be a, an introduced species, it could be a native species, but but when we look at the genus, so Ferrohileus, so Ferro, now, so the common name we're calling this, is it the cloaked bee? Yeah. And there's, and there's a special reason for that. Can you explain why, please, James? Yeah, so I'll, there's some people that really hate common names. I'm not amongst them because I think they're useful for getting people interested um, at all. Like, you know, I'm not going to start out looking at native bees and be like, oh, yes, that's a Farahaleo. But I can say, oh, that's a cloaked bee. Um, I think people are afraid of saying the Latin and Greek names, which, you know, me too. But, yes. you know, as I said to you before we started, if you say it with confidence, yes. you know, <laughs> people will believe you. So the cloaked bee, it didn't have a common name before all the media stuff. And I decided to give it one based on its actual um, scientific name. So Pharaoh actually means cloaked. Um, Haleus means wood, but it means but it's actually the related genus, which is Hylaeus, um, that the whole subfamily is named after. Okay. So it's basically a cloaked Hylaeus. Okay. And the reason it's cloaked is because the first three total segments, so the first three segments of admin, kind of enclose the preceding ones. Um, and as far as I know, it's the only it's the only bee that I know of that does that. Interesting. Um, and it's probably the only Hylaeus that does that. So, yeah, I, I've kind of I've given it a common name based on its scientific name. Yeah, I like that. And what about what about its the bean species, Lactiferous? What what does that mean? Ah, uh, so Lactiferous is much less interesting, uh, and it comes from I think it's the Greek Lactifera, uh, and some viewers might be able to guess from the lact lactating. It means milk. Oh, okay. Um, and which is a little, <laughs> it's a little bit of a gross name, maybe, but it's, it's basically talking about the pale markings, like the milky markings on it. Um, wow, that's yeah, because it's, yeah. it's a black bee with these pale white markings. So I guess if you broke down the name, it would be cloaked wood milk. Yeah, cloaked wood milk. <laughs> that's yeah, which is a common <laughs> name. <laughs> cloaked the cloaked. Wood milk, uh, I'm going to say wasp, cloaked wood milk bee is... Um, yeah. Yeah, it kind of doesn't, yeah. It's like the cloaked bee. Yeah, it's, that's it doesn't cool. roll off the tongue, does it? No, but then again, if you break down any species name, you might find weird meanings. It's, yes. Yeah. That's that's true. That's very true. And so, so with this, um, with the cloaked uh, bee, uh, what, what's next? What's the next project in regards to, is there anything in the horizon with that? What's the plans there? Yeah, so look, I'd love to go and do more research on the biology, like the basic stuff, which people tend not to do because, you know, uh, there's a saying in academia, publish or perish. Um, and you generally want to publish higher impact factor stuff, which is not biology. Um, so the next thing, it's really great that I've got, you know, these people in actually three different, at uh, three different populations that I've met along the way and they might be able to collect some more biological information for me. So for example, if they're going to um, these bee hotels, 
and we might be able to say, okay, they're probably nest in preformed cavities of wood. Okay. Um, they might also be able to go out and take more photos or observe the bees going to different plant species, which would be nice because at the moment I'm only seeing them on two different plant species, both of which with red flowers, which are typically pollinated by birds. Um, they might be able to also extend when they're active. So at the moment we only know that they're active, I think maybe between November and March, something oh, like that, okay. from historical collections in my collections. Um, so are they active all year round? Do they have distinct generations? So, you know, is there generation one, two, and three throughout the year, or is it just continuous? So a lot of tropical bees are actually found continuously um, and throughout the whole year, including winter, just because the, the weather is nice enough for them. There's a whole bunch of these these really basic questions which we don't know. Yes. Um, and these people might be able to help enlighten us as to those. Um, particularly if I don't have time to do another field trip, I'd love to, but this is more of a passion project and I'm maybe at a delicate time in my career getting towards the end of my PhD. But what I would like to do and what Diane has already helped me with, she sent me a few specimens, I'd like to do some more genetic research. Okay. Um, So you can do a lot with genetics. So the first question would be, of course, now we've got four populations. Are they all connected? So are there bees moving between them? Um, and if they're not connected, were they connected in the past or the recent past? So um, let's just take Atherton and Coranda populations, for example. There's no rainforest that connects those two populations mm-hmm. anymore because it's been cleared by yep. um, Europeans since, since we've arrived. Um, but, you know, 200 years ago or more, like, were they connected? we might be able to answer that. The other thing you can look at is it's called past demography, which is a scary word, but it's simply saying what were the population sizes like in the past. So um, you can use genetics actually to see if the population has undergone a sudden bottleneck, so a decline, Um, or you can see if they've undergone a sudden increase in population size or stay stable. And it's, it's really neat, actually, that you can do this kind of stuff with genetics. Um, and it's a little bit ethereal and over most people's heads, but it has to do with um, the different numbers of mutations and what you'd expect to happen. So, for example, if a population had gone through a massive decline, imagine you have 100 bees and all of a sudden you have two. Yes. That means that you've lost all the genetic variation in 98 of those individuals. Oh, okay. And so that's called a bottleneck. Um, okay. And similarly, if you've had a bottleneck and then all of a sudden a massive population increase, as these as the population increases really suddenly, you might not actually have um, what might be slightly deleterious, so negative alleles or mutations removed from the population. So you might find that all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of really new uh, mutations. And the way you tell they're new is because there's only a few individuals that have them. Um, I might be going a bit too far now. No, no, it's good. No, (laughs) no, it's awesome. No, I'm just like, I'm I'm glued just listening to you. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah, and and that's one way that we can hopefully do it without going out and collecting more specimens. Like, I I guess, you know, if you're going out and collecting half a dozen specimens, in terms of insect populations, that shouldn't make a difference. And if it does, 
population is doomed anyway because, you know, they'll probably eat and that number will be eaten by birds or spiders or whatever pretty quickly. But still, there's something, I, just, I don't know, it doesn't feel quite right if you think a bee might be rare or, or potentially endangered to yeah. go out and collect a whole bunch. Yes, of course, yeah. They're the yeah. case for any animal, I guess, as such. But Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so that's... I have like, between five and seven for each population and I'm hoping that'll be enough. Yep, yep. Probably not ideal, but <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. And I'm going to ask you one more question because absolutely, this is, I'm so pumped. This is absolutely awesome just listening to this. Of the 1,654 uh, named species of uh, bees in Australia, what's your second favourite, James? Oh, so this changes pretty regularly. Uh, at times in the past, it's been the cuckoo bees. Okay. I'm not yep. going to say one in particular, just because they're super cool. They're basically like cuckoo birds and go and lay their eggs in other bees' nests. Um, and they're super pretty. But that has probably changed. It changes my interest. So I recently published a paper based on more field work at the same time of low-light adapted bees in Australia, which hadn't been published on before. Um, and I published on that just because I came across these bees and I was super excited. It's super cool, like catching bees foraging after after daylight hours. Um, and mo- most people's idea of bees is, you know, sunshine, lollipops, fields of flowers. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's one genus we have one species of in Australia called Rapinia. Okay. Um, and I caught that. But then I also caught another master bee, a master bee that is super cool, by the way, so other highly iron. Okay. Um, called Meriglossa Jamada. And it was just this massive master bee that I caught after, way, well after the sun had gone down. And it just has these massive eyes and this beautiful, like, dark red and black coloration. So okay. potentially that one. Yep, yep. But, I mean, if you ask me in six months, it'll probably be something else. Change, yes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely love it. That's, James, like, awesome. And thank you so much for your time. And you keep up, you know, I mean, your awesome work, what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for chatting. No, thanks, James. I'm going to put all the information in the show notes, so please check it and check out this. You've got to buy this book, Bees of Australia, A Photographic Exploration. Thank you, James. Talk soon. Take care. You too, Ben. See ya.